And on that lovely note, here we are, beautiful people. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And I am your host, Olga Peters. Hello, contributor Emily Kornheiser. How are you? I'm well. It's good to see you, Olga. It's good to see you, too, because we haven't seen each other in no, a week it's or only two. been two weeks, but we did that pre-record, That's so we true. missed a week of seeing and talking to each other. How sad it was! And then you sent me a really funny text, and I didn't see it for weeks, even. So, I know. Ugh, such a bad text, friend. Well, as usual, we are here to talk about what happens in Montpelier and how it shakes out for Wyndham County, and this is a big deal because this is our last episode before the legislative session starts next week it is the session starts on tuesday i know are you excited i am very much looking forward to it i would like to jump to monday because the list that i have accumulated for myself (laughs) to accomplish between now and monday is so profoundly unachievable that i wish that i could just skip to the point where i don't achieve it and and just say like that's done and we'll start here (laughs) i think that's a very good wise (laughs) thing to do actually with any to-do list well as folks will remember emily and i have been having over the last few months a number of conversations on on basically the nuts and bolts of government and how does government work And this is, as we tend to do, our Lessons Learned episode, Mm -hmm. where we're going to sit and pause and reflect on what we have learned. But before we do that, Emily, would you mind framing for folks kind of the conversations we've been having and some of our intentions behind those conversations? Yep, absolutely. We started in this summer thinking about what are the big picture frameworks and concepts and ways of doing business that shape how we enter public policy debate and how we have public policy debates in Vermont. And so we really wanted to do that through a course of different conversations, and we have. And so we started off talking about public participation, public meeting laws, Um, one thing that we really came to during that time was the fact that we don't often spend time just sitting and reflecting Mm -hmm. as we are hoping to do today. Don't feel particularly reflective myself, and I'm hoping it um, comes back out again. (laughs) And then we talked about how we often try to legislate morality and whether that works or doesn't. Um, I personally think it rarely does, Mm -hmm. but, you know, that's up to some listeners to decide too, I guess. (laughs) And so we talked about sex and drugs and public space and public speech. And that was a really fun one. That was a great one. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about money, right? And we both learned a lot Mm -hmm. in those conversations, especially with uh, Stephanie Yu from Public Assets Institute. I learned so much from her. Mm -hmm. We talked about public education funding and other kinds of taxes. We talked about grants and contracts. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a very aspirational conversation. Um, with the agency of human someone from the agency of human services and then I feel like I'm skipping a month but maybe I'm not I don't think so because I think from there we went into infrastructure great and so then we went to infrastructure and we talked about um, housing and rural land how we build or don't and we talked about some sort of the infrastructure of regulation that came up across Mm -hmm. the board how we regulate land how we regulate finance um, and how we regulate farms. Mm-hmm. So those were some really good conversations too. And we had some really great conversations kind of that fell into 
regulations as well as infrastructure, and that was housing. And we talked to Mara Collins from the Vermont uh, Housing Finance Authority. Agency. The, agency, thank you. Because oh, there are housing authorities, the, 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 too. It's, it's an extra <laughs> confusing one. Yes. Uh, but then uh, Craig and Bob came by, too, to talk about mm-hmm. kind of the, the for-profit um, market that we yes. really don't have. They said that there actually <laughs> isn't any profit, but they are technically a for-profit term. Right. Um, firm. And so we talked about sort of the big picture and the more micro side of what it means to build housing in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us, us now to our kind of sit and process and reflect. And I think for me, what's what's bubbling to the surface right now is is at noon today, I had a conversation with Paul Silo from the Public Assets Institute. I feel a little left out, I have to tell you. I, I, okay. I was kind I was of wishing work. you could yeah. be there because I was like, oh, Emily's going to like this. And I couldn't. No, it's. I, I couldn't. I couldn't uh, record it. My either. feelings don't mean you need to change your behavior. Olga. <laughs> yeah, but that's how I was brought up. <laughs> um, but we we were talking about the 2019 state of working Vermonters or state of working Vermont report. Excuse me. That is a report they put out every year, and they look at a wide swath of the income of the economy they look at personal income and whether there was growth there they look at taxes and our taxation system they look at demographics they look at um poverty and and who is dealing with poverty who isn't if there are any trends they look at at big picture trends as well and one thing they they really focused on in this report which is kind of sticking with me is that A few things. One, the recession technically ended long enough ago in 2010 that now we have trends. You know, they can look at some big picture, long term patterns Mm -hmm. in the economy and say, yep, that's a trend. It's no longer a fluke. Um, and, And what they found was and you and I have talked about this, Emily, at other in other shows in in a different way is that there are two economies in Vermont. Mm hmm. And both of them are true. One one story or one reality is there has been economic growth. We have more public sector jobs than we have had in many, many years. Um, there has been an increase in wealth in mm-hmm. many ways in the Vermont economy. And there are businesses that are growing rapidly in Chittenden. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a lot of really like, yay, things in the economy. But yet, there is also this very true and very real second economy, which is people who are hardly getting by. Mm -hmm. And wages are depressed. And we have a wage issue in this state that is more than our cost of living. Significantly Significantly more than our cost of living. Um, And and so that, that that, that disconnect that can sometimes happen between the individual person's experience and the Mm -hmm. aggregate is something I stumble across as a journalist a lot and kind of wonder how I how I need to deal with that and it's one of actually the interesting problems with the aggregate especially when we're looking at really two large clusters of data Mm -hmm. that when you put together you can't tell a complex story with Mm. or even a useful story Mm -hmm. but when you're able to say actually these are two different clusters of data and two different stories then it becomes a much clearer thing so if we looked at the mean of wages right then we wouldn't see the two vermonts right we would just see or the two economies we would see sort of 
an average state getting by in an average way. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we're able to look at sort of, you know, when we have really good analysis, we can see those two different clusters of data. I'm making these great hand gestures I know, right now, I'm so sad. And no we one don't. knows. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's poetry in motion here, people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the things about the happy hour when we're having these conversations and we really should start the live streaming. We do. So everyone can be in it, here with except us. Except now you're going to be at Montpelier and I'll be here when we're mm-hmm. talking. It's true. Mm, how are we going to... More technical things to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that really... The two other things that really stood out for me. One was he's, he feels that overall the state has not been making the public investments that it needs to make mm-hmm. across the board. Clean water, child care are just two of the ex, ex, uh, examples they point to. And he said overall, and I was like, oh, I wish Emily could hear this. He says the state really needs or the legislature really needs to start managing its state budget to the needs of Vermonters mm-hmm. rather than just saying, well, this is the money we have. This is we'll the money we have. Work. Yeah. And I was like, there we go. The needs based budget is, I mean, it's how can you possibly make decisions if you don't understand the full scope of the story you're trying to tell or the mm-hmm. problem we're trying to solve. But we never start from that point. Yes. This is true. So frustrating. And it's another, you know, when we were having that public, the conversation about how we make public decisions and public debate and all of that, we're never starting from the right point in the conversation. And Mm -hmm. the budget's another example of that. So for you, Emily, just kind of based on what I just said, and... um, And I did skim the report. I haven't read it detailed yet. It's sitting next to the bed, all printed out. It's a pretty report, It is so deserving that it got to leave the internet and become real life. <laughs> That's how much I am excited about reading Actually this Actually printed on paper. Very few reports make that far. Um, well, the other thing I want to say before I go on to my next question is at, at the end of almost every interview I do, I usually ask people anything you wanted to add, which I had asked. And he said, well, I want to highlight the fact that Vermont's not really losing population. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, do talk me through that process. Did you, the United Van Lines? Uh, no. Or something else. He was talking about page 25 of the report. I'll pass it over to you. Um, how if you look over from 2010 to 2018, because that's the, the best data they have. Mm-hmm. Um, Vermont has actually, if you look at all the ways people come in and out of a state, either they move, they migrate, they um, are born, they die, what, all the different reasons people come in and out of a, a territory. Um, Vermont over the past, what, 2010 to 2018, eight, eight years, mm-hmm. has actually gained a net 555 people rather than lose the 10,000 that mm-hmm. we so often see. Yes. Um, no, it's really amazing how that's one of the things we've really learned over the, one of the reasons we've actually done this show over the last Mm -hmm. few months, but definitely something we've learned even more clearly is that if you repeat a trope often enough, it becomes real. Right. And so really taking the time to unpack these tropes before we make policy decisions is so important. So there was also United Van Lines does a migration study every single year. Oh, um, right. That's gets a lot of traction. And, we actually had the highest percentage of in-migration, huh. but it's not considered part of the regular data set since we don't actually have United Van Lines operating in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, there's Which that. Which is just another way that sort of the Vermont economy is separated from the rest of the country. Um, <laughs> yes, Paul and I had a very interesting conversation about islands mm, <laughs> and whether yes. they exist or not. Yes. Um, I'd like to highlight one other thing about what you said, um, the idea around more people working for the public sector mm-hmm. and the importance of that. There is so much economic research about the power of large institutions and those can be um, public or nonprofit, but are generally not private. Mm. So large institutions like hospitals, universities, um, the retreat's a great example of this, and how those institutions profoundly stabilize regional economies mm-hmm. in a way that can is such a great um, facilitator of growth and stability if there are other things in place. Mm-hmm. But it's such an profoundly important stabilizing force. I I hear what you're saying, and I think I'm glad you brought that up because it's a good point. One thing I would ask, though, about this area is we have a lot of those great institutions, the retreat, the hospital, um, even the town, Mm -hmm. in a way. At the same time, our economy is so weighted Mm -hmm. towards nonprofits Mm -hmm. that I wonder if we, we, Wyndham County region, I'm kind of thinking of, would actually benefit if we had more um, non uh, for-profit entities just in a way to diversify the economy. Do you, mm-hmm. do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, ideally, the one of the reasons that those large institutions are such powerful stabilizing forces isn't just the people who work there, but is that they are a steady purchasing agent uh, for other okay. private services. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, the retreat has legal counsel, but they also contract legal services, mm-hmm. for instance, or food services coming in or whatever else it is. So large institutions also buy a lot of stuff. Gotcha. And because they um, don't go anywhere and they tend to pay their bills relatively on time, um, they're a great place for people to experiment. So Food Connects, which is actually also a nonprofit, but a very <laughs> entrepreneurial nonprofit, exactly. yeah, right, yeah. really is able to make the leap between the, has created the, to bring it back to our month's theme, Food Connects created a lot of the rural infrastructure that's really necessary for working lands to thrive and access the economy, Mm -hmm. right? So we have all these small family farms that are often existing as islands unto themselves because they can't, they can manage their land, they can grow their crops, but the extra um, sales skills or sales capital that Mm -hmm. they might need, the HR support, all of the extra, the transportation Um, that they might need to access an economy at the scale that we're at is sort of beyond the scope of those small farms. And so Food Connects um, serve this really powerful social infrastructure and capital infrastructure by being the transportation and sales for all of these small farms to access these much more stable markets. And they really were able to build their business based on schools and Mm -hmm. places like The Retreat, like based on institutions being their first customers. Right. And that's a very possible thing for a lot of other entrepreneurial businesses, whether those are businesses or nonprofits. (laughs) So that's an exciting thing. It's interesting to me, though. I mean, ideally, in my vision of good government, the great work that Food Connects did would have been work that would have been much more enabled by government. Mm -hmm. Well, that brings us back to my the question I was going to ask you is, given the conversations we've had, um, and some of the context that we're seeing from from places like the Public Assets Institute, 
How is this, Emily, going to influence you when you go back to the legislative session? I'm thinking a lot more. This I'm thinking more about this month and the public assets report. I, you know, I think later in the show, as we sort of after the break, I think we should talk more about like the four or five months overall. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm really sitting with this idea of how government is a force for enabling other things, mm-hmm. right, um, or disabling other things. So we um, talked to the Department of Financial Regulation. And how, um, because of the particular way they regulate, they're able to create a very stable operating environment for businesses who know what they're expecting, know that they're respected, have an equal relationship with sort of an equal intellectual relationship with the folks that they're working with, um, are able to really get things done in a very clean, straightforward way that also protects Vermonters Mm -hmm. and Vermonters' financial needs. And so when I think about doing that same kind of thing with, say, our housing market, which for all of the amazing people that are in that sandbox, mm-hmm. you know, Mora included, it is total chaos, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And so we don't, you know, even have regulations that are the same across the state. Builders don't necessarily know what they're going to get. Um, the process for getting permits is very I hear a lot of complaints it's about very that. varied and yeah. it's not um there's nothing wrong with permitting i think permitting is wonderful i think environmental protections for growth are incredible i think that's why vermont one of the reasons one of the reasons <laughs> that vermont looks like vermont it doesn't look like florida like it's great yeah. that we have these regulations but unless we have a positive regulatory force that is clear clean and stable then no one can predict what's going to happen next and mm-hmm. it becomes impossible to make decisions yeah well, actually, that's what I hear from a lot of business owners when I say to them, hey, we, we've heard the mythology that Vermont is a hard place to do business. Lots of taxes, lots of regulations, blah, blah, blah. What is your experience? And they'll say to me, you know what? Act, 50, Act 250 is Act 250. Wherever we go, we're going to have to jump through hoops, whatever state we're in. What's hard for us in Vermont is we feel that the process in many ways is very obtuse and is very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So we can't plan, gee, if we put our permit in on January 1st, we can have a shovel in the ground. We'll know whether we can put a shovel in the ground by whatever, March 1st. Mm -hmm. They don't know that. They might get their permit back in March. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe it's February. Mm-hmm. And that's Maybe not just September. True. Yeah. And that's not just true for builders. I mean, that's true for um, folks who are trying to get housing vouchers mm-hmm. who are working in social services. That's true for folks who are farmers who are trying to expand their farms and looking for support from the state. Um, that's true in a lot of sectors. And part of that is because we have chronically underfunded social infrastructure, right. including government. So, Vermont is very small, and yet to do these things, you know... It takes a lot of effort. Scale takes a lot of effort, and there is sort of, an uh, you know, we don't reach economies of scale, and I don't really like using that term, but it's true. We don't Mm -hmm. really reach economies of scale here very often. No. And so, you know, the per-person costs of a lot of regulation are expensive, but it's worth it because it makes everything else more possible. Yeah. I think what was a little disappointing for me when I was talking to Paul earlier today, when he taught, he was talking about public uh, investment is that infrastructure 
specifically is one thing government can do really well. Mm -hmm. It's actually set up really Mm -hmm. well for doing infrastructure. And to hear that our state hasn't really been making the investment it needs to. Mm -hmm. Oh, I find that really frustrating. It's Mm -hmm. like, you could get that right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's what we do. Well, we do physical infrastructure well, meaning, you know, roads and bridges and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also do social infrastructure very well, which is, you know, childcare, family medical leave, um, public programs. Minimum (laughs) wage is not a program. It's a policy, right? (laughs) Um, So I would not necessarily... But it is in some ways a set of social infrastructure in that it sets the bar for what an acceptable way of doing business is. Mm -hmm. You know, it says that this is the bare minimum that's needed to be a business and to be an employer. Mm -hmm. Um, And we say that in a lot of other ways, right? We say, you know, providing, you know, a maximum number of hours is the bare minimum that an employer needs to do. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, minimum wage, I think, is part of that conversation, which I guess in some ways is social infrastructure, even though I think you were just teasing me. <laughs> it's okay. I think we're both right, actually. Mm-hmm. I think we are. Um, and so just to before we go to break, because, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that the first part of the show is almost done already. Um, how are you, you know, you're one person mm-hmm. in this big legislative this is the question right before we go to break we'll, this is yes. how we're going to wind up to it okay um <laughs> are you getting scared <laughs> Hello. but i see i can ask these questions because i know i have confidence in you thanks that i know you can do this um you're only one person but how how are you going to influence the process when you come back mm-hmm. or is there a coalition of folks in the legislature who are like yeah it's time we start managing to our needs and not our money Whew. Oh, I'm sorry if that was very loud to the to the ears, that little exhale there. Oh, good. Um, there is a informal coalition of folks, I think, who are interested in doing that and are aware that it's going to be a very long-term conversation mm-hmm. to even make the point that it's needed. I'd say where I'm focused right now as an individual is on process mm. um, and thinking about how I can support my colleagues to be thinking more about um, what positive accountability might look like for government, how to make our legislation more transparent and accountable, making sure that we understand the purpose of why we're doing things and are communicating that effectively. Because I feel like that's a really essential next step to be Mm. to figuring out how what we're doing matches up to our needs. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where I'm really focused this session and then really starting to lay the seeds around um, always asking the question of like, what actually is the need of this? So last year when we were doing weatherization, I asked how many homes in the state actually do need to be weatherized? And no one had the answer to the question. And yet we're still developing policies to do that Mm -hmm. and saying we don't have enough money and this isn't enough. And this is just a drop in the bucket. And I absolutely agree. It's probably just a drop in the bucket, but I have no idea how big the bucket is. Right. And so, um, Really, you know, it's the second half of a biennium. I'm a new legislator. And so I'm focused really hard on improving process. And I'm in a really great place to do that on the Government Accountability Committee. And then um, seeding those conversations around need and want and, you know, how many folks we have in the state that are working. Yeah. And 
that the state's not working for. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to have the state work for people? And by state, I mean government. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Emily. I, I, um, given how fast the legislative session can be, I'm always amazed when people can think clearly going into it and, and get things done. So thank you for the work you'll be doing on behalf of that, on behalf of all of us here in Wyndham County. I think for me, going forward, one thing I will be reminding myself on is, or about as my work for the newspaper is people, sometimes I think as journalists, we're so focused on what happened, you know, what vote was taken, um, what legislation will pass, that type of thing. We can forget about context and we can forget about the why something works the way it does, whether mm-hmm. whether that's a good way of working or not, is not the, just that the why of why yeah. some of these things exist. And I, I feel that's important because what I've learned in these last few months is when people understand how something works, whether they agree with it or not isn't the point. They If they understand, they at least feel empowered mm-hmm. rather than just at the whim of this big faceless thing we called government. And then thus, instead of yelling yes and no they'll engage hopefully hopefully that is there's a better chance (laughs) that's a much better chance um and also i feel that by having the the why in there and the understanding again whatever we're working on may not apply to everyone in the same way Mm -hmm. but at least everyone can come to the table with a common ground and a common touchstone and then then we can have the conversations from there Mm -hmm. about what needs to be fixed, what can stay the same, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And I feel that I have to remember to include that aspect of um, under, helping people understand things in, in my own reporting. Thanks. You're welcome. It's so important. It is. Can I add a little personal touch before we go to break? Of course. So I was reading the New York Times at 4 o'clock in the morning because... That's which is like maybe the dumbest thing a person can possibly. Oh do. my gosh! And so that's one way to make sure you won't go back to sleep. I know, Get yourself was, all completely yeah. riled. So up. Um, it turned out that at four o'clock in the morning we had just um, murdered um, a very powerful person mm-hmm. in another government. Mm-hmm. Um, no tricky things there. And. Um, so that has its whole own very interesting thing about just how that would be reported if it happened here, you mm-hmm. know, like if anyway, but that's not even my point. So I'm going to try not to go down that <laughs> rabbit hole that I'm about to go down. But so I found out that that happened and I found out that there are wildfires in Australia and I found out that there's a democratic primary happening. And, um, I already knew all three of those things when I started reading the New York times at four o'clock in the morning. Cause mm-hmm. I had, you know, listened to the radio and read the paper the day before and the day before that and the day before that and the day before that. I mean, the Iran thing is new, but the rest of it wasn't. And I was so frustrated that I really didn't learn anything else other than those facts. Right. And there's so much to know about why wildfires are raging in Australia Mm -hmm. beyond, you know, global warming and why the people who are in the primary are still in the primary and the people who aren't in the primary aren't in the primary and what they even want to do with America. Right. So it was just, it was so striking to me because four o'clock in the morning, things are striking. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But so I really appreciate you saying that. And I want you to know that, you know, you're in good company because the New York Times seems to be doing it too. Well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> hey, this is Olga Peters and Emily Kornheiser. We are the Montpelier Happy Hour and we are going to go to break and hear a little bit from some of our underwriters and we shall return. Beautiful people in Brattleboro, you are listening to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. As always, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and the guests, not the radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and hey, contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Olga. (laughs) So for you, looking back over the last uh, about four months or so since we've been diving into these deep conversations on on special topics, what has been the biggest lesson? It's five months. Five months? Mm -hmm. Oh, good for you. We've been doing really good work. Five months. Well, this show is coming up on a year. We haven't quite made a year yet, but we're almost there. Thanks for being my buddy and all this. Aw, thanks for showing up every week and having fun conversations mm-hmm. and being cool. Yeah. Yay. Um, That's us being geeky. There you go. Now back to your regular program. I think more sappy than geeky. Okay. Perfectly. <laughs> I'll go with that. Better on that. Um, so for me, I think what we've really done, I realize in retrospect, was spend all of this time examining tropes, Mm -hmm. um, examining the assumptions that underlie how we do all the things we do. And we were sort of saying that the whole time, Mm -hmm. but it didn't, for whatever reason, quite hit me until today when I think about how I'm going to bring all of this with me to Montpelier. Yeah. And what I'm still sitting with is, okay, I'm pretty sure that most of my colleagues didn't listen to the show. (laughs) And so I certainly didn't listen to their shows. So, you know, no blame on them. Um, Except ours is better. Maybe. Maybe. But (laughs) I still don't know. And this is sort of, you know, getting back to our first few episodes about public debate and public conversation. When we hear these tropes being repeated... How do we help people unpack them who are next to us? How do we break open the policy debate to be like, wait a minute, we don't have a population problem. Or mm-hmm. wait a minute, that isn't our population problem. Wait a minute, maybe we don't understand this problem. Yeah. Wait a minute, what is the need? I don't, I still, I always pick words of the year. Mm-hmm. Happy New Year, Olga. I don't think I've said that. Happy New Year to you too. I always pick words of the year. And two years ago, three years ago. My word was grace. Mm -hmm. And it really, you know, it really helped me just sort of think about, I guess, really the value of manners, but sort of higher level manners, like really how to be with people in a way that is softer for them Mm -hmm. um, while still not compromising myself. I think that's the difference. I think that's where grace sits for me. It's about balance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am still not sure how to do it on this particular topic. And I'm wondering about your thoughts because you ask people hard questions all day. Yeah, well, I it's nice to hear someone else struggle with this, actually, because one thing I find really interesting is, you know, there's this hope in journalism, which Josh Davis, we were talking about, and he just basically openly laughed at me. Um, There's this hope in journalism that if you give people really good information, 
they will take it and make really good decisions. I'm not going to laugh at you, Olga. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to smile okay. lovingly. It's okay, because, yeah, yeah it's a hope. Um, it so often is not the reality. And what I find really interesting in my work is there is a fact might be one thing, but someone's emotional attachment or relationship to that fact doesn't even have to be emotional. Their yeah. beliefs, their emotions, whatever, their own experiences that have led them to that point will change how they view that fact for example let's say there are five dead bodies on main street that's the fact yeah but whether it was an accident they were murdered or it's a very meaningful funeral procession or it's a very meaningful funeral possession whatever that depends on who that depends on your relationship to that fact Mm -hmm. and um I find that a really tricky thing to navigate and how to, um, we saw a little bit in Brattleboro when they were talking about the, uh, many months ago now, the parking garage and how many people didn't feel safe Mm -hmm. and they didn't feel safe for whatever their reasons were. But town manager, Peter Elwell said, well, you know, when you look at the data of the police reports, it's not showing any increase in violence. It's not showing any increase of, of these negative behaviors that people are worried about. And yet, I still hear people who say, I don't go to the parking garage because I don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to marry those two things sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think the only, at least for, for me and the tools I have to work with, is to just keep having conversations. And so... That example is a really helpful one for me Um, because I know that curiosity is really, it's really powerful, Mm -hmm. right? So why do you feel unsafe? Mm -hmm. What's happened to you there? Yep. Right? What do you think is going to happen? Do you have any evidence in your life of that happening, right? Um, That's a question, that evidence question has been really helpful for me Mm -hmm. lately. Just even like when I'm being an obsessive worrier about something that I have no need to worry about, I'll be like, is there any actual evidence in my life that any of that's ever happened before or (laughs) might ever happen again? Um, And so I, asking those questions um, of people that we're in community with is so important to really understand, I guess, understand the why Mm -hmm. and the context for why someone's feeling that way and sort of what I find is I guess when I'm on the other side of the fact, Mm -hmm. it's very hard for me to be curious. Interesting. So when people are talking about, um, you know, if we even bring our taxes in Vermont up to the level where we would just be sort of like fixing the Trump tax cuts, it wouldn't Mm -hmm. even be like at meaningful progressive levels. People worry about um, wealthy people fleeing the state. (laughs) And there's no evidence that that ever happens anywhere. No. No evidence. In fact, the evidence that is in the report we were talking about at the top of the hour is that the folks who left Vermont, for the most part, in the income, if you look at their income bracket, it was uh, lower income, middle to lower income. Ooh, that gives a lot of fodder to um, a few people in our community that I know are very upset about some things right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's interesting. Um, But, and... Those are different words, but an end. 
And I think is, well, it's interesting <laughs> and is something that I have started to use more in my reporting instead of, instead of having either ors, like mm -hmm. so often we set up our arguments, mm -hmm. just we as a community is yes and. Yes, I've been trying, to, I've been trying to, which is how you just heard me correcting myself. Um, when someone says that, my first instinct is to jump in with the, but have you seen the study? But there's no evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of, what evidence do you have of that? Oh, you have a friend who said they're thinking about moving. Do you have any other friends who are also thinking about moving? Do you have friends in other states who are thinking about moving who might have a lower tax rate? So really helping people ask those same questions that I'm asking myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think would go a long way, but I still don't know where there's space for that in the political process. You know, I'm right. not even, when I'm in committee, it's not really necessarily appropriate to turn to one of my colleagues and say, what makes you think that? It's really much more appropriate for me to ask the witness, what makes you think that? Mm -hmm. um, so even, even that is sort of a interesting trick of the mind that I need to help my colleague think about why they think something by asking the witness why they think something and hoping that, that what the witness says will trigger my own colleague to a different type of reflection. Interesting. Well, what this brings me back to is, you know, another thing we have come to over these past few months is how the political process doesn't have this space for reflection it doesn't have this space for deliberative building, mm -hmm. you know, because to me, like what you're telling me, my first reaction was, well, when you first, when a, a piece of legislation is first proposed, doesn't everyone sit down and talk about their intent? No, about, no, no. But let me tell you a very cool <laughs> thing, Olga. So I said that, you know, this upcoming session, I'm very excited about process, and I'm sure every listener's eyes glazed over because <laughs> no one cares about process. They just um, want to know how much this new legislation is going to cost them. That's all, ultimately what they know. But, and, um, <laughs> on the Government Accountability m Committee, my colleague Drew and I, um, Drew, who works at the Agency of Human Services, have developed something um, and sort of adapted something called a performance note. Um, mm -hmm. And we sort of took something that was called a performance note and then we turned it into something because the performance note was a little scary. Instead, we're calling it a legislative intent guide. Ah, oh, very nice. And we had a full day training with more than 50 legislators who all came voluntarily Ooh. in the middle of the week to come and go through a bunch of pieces of sort of these worksheets that we created around government accountability and governmental really more process than mm -hmm. accountability because good process leads to good accountability mm -hmm. so we have a legislative intent guide we have a data sort of a data-based questions guide mm -hmm. um sort of data-based inquiry i guess is the best way to explain it and so we had this five-hour training we have the legislative intent guide my committee chair was at that training, was really excited, wants me to spend three hours on the first day of the session with my committee talking them through how we can use the legislative intent guide throughout the session as a way of really becoming a more reflective committee. I'm so proud of you right now. Thank you. <laughs> and we're going to be doing it in other committees as well. So um, process might be really boring, but it also provides space for people to understand why they're doing what they're doing because mm -hmm. there's so little time for that 
And we need to be making time for that if we're going to be making good decisions. Yeah. Well, I've always said, because I started, uh, and I still am a fiction writer, you know, if I was writing a screenplay about Montpelier, it would be fun and it would be exciting and it would probably be this one person fighting the system and 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 getting their their legislation through at the last minute and be all like nail biting and stuff like that not how it happens at all well that's cool for a movie (laughs) but actually for democracy we kind of want it to be boring can i read you a line from my um my last newsletter i'm going to send out before i leave go for it um there's much anticipation and uncertainty about what will take flight, what will take flight, and what bills will be ground to death by the wheels of deliberation. It's possible I'm going to delete that line because it's a little too dark, but I wanted you to hear it because that's what when you said that this like thrilling movie, it's really a lot more bills being ground to death by the wheels of deliberation than anything else. And I just want to make sure that we're grinding them to death deliberately rather than through deliberation. <laughs> I was going to say yes. Don't we want good deliberation? <laughs> but yes, what, what works in a great two-hour thriller of a movie does not work in democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. We actually want deliberate grinding to death. <laughs> and space before we grind things to death to unpack them, understand them, examine the tropes in a self-reflective way, understand who is most affected by what we're doing, and understanding what will be effective rather than what sort of our default sort of government process is or what our default moral standing is, but what we would really come to if we unpacked all the pieces of both our assumptions and our processes. I wonder what the the legislative uh, process would look like ex- because we do do it in two year bienniums. If we knew every year the budget was going to be dealt with, and we knew every year, you know, those bills that need to happen so government can keep moving forward, that they would happen every year. Mm-hmm. But that the first year of a biennium was never for passing other bills, they would it would be for research, witness collection, you know, statement collection. Um, unpacking, deliberation, and then things would be voted on in the second part oh, of the biennium. That's so exciting. <laughs> are you are you t- are you kidding? Are you serious? No, I'm really excited. <laughs> I love that idea. I, there's a few, you know, there's some few states that their second session, they don't pass anything. They just like tweak stuff. Mm-hmm. But that feels like the opposite of what we're talking that's, about. That seems reactive. Yes. I am so excited about this idea. Let's do it next year. Okay, let's do it. Let's make that happen. (laughs) Um, I want to make sure we save time for drinks. Well, we have about five minutes before the drinks. Okay. So what else do you want to kind of, how how else can we solidify everything we've been talking about for people? Besides the fact that I just on a whim totally redid the legislative session. (laughs) That was a good move. Um, That I'm still, I think the essential question that we asked at the beginning. So we've sort of unpacked why we do the things the way we do them. Um, We have talked about how that impacts infrastructure. We've talked about how that impacts is taxation and spending. We've talked about how that impacts how vulnerable people in our community get by. 
But it all started with this conversation about public participation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we still don't have the mechanisms for all the folks on the street out there to be talking about what matters. Mm -hmm. And so that's, for me, like, until we can solve that, and I get very stuck in a chicken and the egg with, like, until people's wages are actually sufficient for anyone to have any time or mental space, how can we possibly expect public participation? That's why capitalism keeps on winning. Um, I don't know, you know, whether I'm going to have fried chicken or a scrambled egg, Mm -hmm. but that seems to me the crux of the challenge here Mm -hmm. um, is how we re-examine our deliberative processes. So we're looking at what's right, not not what's righteous, so that we're being curious. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, I agree. We we have... I think one thing we did over these past few months was got really good at pointing out what parts of our deliberative process are missing. And, and yet we don't really have solutions. Um, But my hope is that by having these conversations, we can bring these questions to other people so that it can be more than just us figuring out how to solve it, that it could be other people saying, okay, yes, how do we bring this on board? Mm-hmm. I also want to thank you for what you just said uh, in this hour about curiosity, because I forget as someone whose job it is to be curious. Professional curiosity. Professional curiosity. Um, how really valuable that is. So thank you for reminding me not to take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of people who aren't moving through the world with curiosity. No. And what a gift that you're forced to do that. Mm-hmm. It really is. It really is. It actually cuts down on some of your stress level. Oh. Mm. Not my deadlines and stuff, but other things. Hmm. Maybe so, we should be curious about deadlines in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so why do we really have to have deadlines? Oh, right, because the paper comes out on the same day every, every week. Um, so, Emily, mm-hmm. since this is our last show before the legislative session starts mm-hmm. on Tuesday, what are you drinking these days? I made a great drink on New Year's Eve and actually some great drinks on Christmas. But, ooh, and some great drinks for a Hanukkah party. Ooh. You know, just the season. Mm-hmm. But New Year's Eve, I'm going to tell you about my New Year's Eve drink that okay, I'm hoping I'm to carry down. into the future. Um, I know it's like very out of fashion, but I'm still very into Aperol. So I'm just going to keep on going with it. Don't judge me. I know that most of you probably haven't even heard of Aperol, so... Um, You should spend as much time on food blogs as I do. (laughs) Gin and Aperol with a lot of ice shaken for a while. Put into a glass, a large wine glass, ideally, Mm -hmm. with a very large splash of sparkling wine. And then this is the part that was so perfect. A squeeze of Meyer lemon. It changed everything. It became very floral. That sounds yummy. It was delicious. Yeah. So. And then I have a non-alcoholic drink. Too, okay. What's your non-alcoholic? Um, I candied a bunch of cranberries. Oh, yum. Yeah. To put on top of a cake. But then mm-hmm. I realized that they're great for cocktails, too. And so they're like they soak in sugar syrup overnight. And then you roll them in fancy sugar afterwards. And so those were very fun to put in a drink with some sparkling water and some cherry juice and a little bit of bitters or a shrub. Bitters. Mm -hmm. You're making me really want a lemon, lime and bitters right now. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, thank you, Emily. I have to say, um, over the break, I, um, I had a lovely, this isn't a cocktail in of itself, but it was a lovely moment in theme with this hour is I had a split, a bottle of, um, rosé that had been given to me as a gift with a neighbor and we sat and talked and drank wine and laughed and de-stressed for like three hours and we haven't had that much time to kind of connect in a long time and it just reminded me once again how important it is to make those times with Mm -hmm. friends and family and neighbors and neighbors to sit and and just shoot the breeze Mm -hmm. and and kind of process um, some of the things we've gone through over the past mm-hmm. few months. Yeah. And I think it's those trusting relationships that everything else sort of builds out of. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. That's, I would say trusting relationships are at the base of community. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. On that note, thanks for a great year, Olga. Thank you, Emily. And yes, thank you for showing up. Thank you for being here. Thank you for participating and bringing your wisdom. And hey, Guess what? All you listeners out there, we could not be doing any of this without you all. So thank you for tuning in over this past year as we get ready to go into the next phase of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. As always, you can find us here at 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon or at the Vermontitude SoundCloud page, the Vermontitude Facebook page. And Emily, how can people contact you? EmilyKornheiser.org, eKornheiser at Gmail, eKornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I am at the co-op for office hours every Saturday at 11 and will soon be at the library every second Saturday at 10 a.m. for a legislative forum with my two other Brattleboro reps, Tristan Tolino and Molly Burke. And, uh, it's going to be harder to catch me in the street for the next mm-hmm. few months, but feel free to visit me at the state house. Yes. Always love a good visitor. Well, especially from, from this part of the state. Cause we don't get up there often enough. Nope. nope. It's a great town. Hey everybody have a great weekend. Happy 2020. I hope it is a healthy, happy, vibrant one and abundant one for you all. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>